Amen. I appreciate what has gone before already. It has been moving and encouraging to be in worship with you already this morning. Uh, time truly flies by swiftly. I feel as if it's just yesterday that I was here and it was uh, the turning from 2021 to 2022 and it's now in human time, 2023. I'm a new year. It truly is incredible. Um, I'd like us to go back to Luke, the 12th chapter. We'll be reading from different verses. We may briefly touch on a few things that we alluded to last night, but overall, this is a new passage and some new subjects of consideration this morning. And Jesus, once again, is exhorting his disciples, yes, and also those gathered around him, as he often does um, in their service. And he begins in verse 35 of Luke chapter 12 by instructing them to let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Verse 36, and you yourselves liken to men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. So the opening of Jesus' exhortation to the disciples at this moment is that they find themselves at all times in an active posture of service. You know, and this isn't language that we use frequently anymore, but essentially what Jesus is telling them is the equivalent of don't be caught in your night clothes when the Lord returns. You know, any really any major dressing habits that I have now were taught to be me by an ex-Marine in the church in which I grew up. And often when I entered the service, he would tell me things when I was somewhat younger than I am now. He would say, hey, you've forgotten your belt this morning. Are you prepared for the worship of your Lord this morning? You've forgotten your belt, or in his military terms, your jib line isn't straight. He was always there to assure me that when I came to the house of the Lord, I was adequately dressed and prepared in a pleasing manner to come before the Lord and worship in the best articles of clothing um, that I had, which is certainly something for us to consider even as we worship today. And the Jesus is telling the disciples somewhat of the same thing. Let your loins be girded about. He's saying be prepared to labor in the way that you're dressed when your Lord returns. And, and perhaps both a figurative and literal sense. Saying, disciples, put your belt around your waist. Prepare yourself for the service of the Lord. You might think of the language that Paul issues to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 6 in the 14th verse. Gird up, stand therefore with your loins, gird about. You know, and Peter tells us much the same thing, to gird up the loins of our minds. That is to say, be prepared to labor. Be actively dressed in such a way that you indicate your preparation to labor and serve in the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells the disciples the same thing. And also, he says, have your lights burning. Have your lamps lit. Now, again, not an, an analogy that we would be as familiar with today because we're blessed with the convenience of electricity. But at this time, having your lights burning was definitely something to be concerned with. You know, Jesus, he proffers another parable, the parable of the ten virgins, in which there are five foolish virgins and five wise virgins. 
And the wise virgins are those who were prepared to welcome their master home from a wedding with their lamps trimmed in oil. That is to say, when their master returned, when the bridegroom returned from the wedding, they are standing there along the pathway at the entrance to the house with their lamps trimmed and filled with oil, ready to light the way of their Lord. And Jesus is using that same analogy in this moment. Disciples, when you welcome your Lord as he returns from the wedding, trim your lamps, fill them with oil, cast light upon the pathway of your master. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And he uses this language to further explain this analogy that he gives us in verse 36. Ye yourselves should be likened to men that wait for their Lord when he return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. And I assure you, in a very real sense, on this present day, that the Lord is celebrating a portion of his wedding here today in heaven at the right hand of his Father. He is celebrating the completion of part of the Godhead's work to secure the salvation of his people. He's ascended back into heaven and he simply waits the time at which he may come down to this earth and gather his bride unto himself for the last time. And we upon this earth, at this very day, at this very moment, are as these men and these servants that waited for the return of their Lord from a wedding. Because we are awaiting the time at which Jesus Christ would descend from heaven at the right hand of the Father and gather his bride to be with himself as the bridegroom. And so there are this series of exhortations that were issued as we wait here upon this earth for the return of our Lord. Because he will return from the wedding. We don't know exactly when that may be. We don't know when that time will come. It may be in this next moment, it may be tomorrow, it may be a thousand years from now. Only the Father knows of that time, but it will come. That when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. The second return of the Lord is pending, yes. But I assure you today that he often visits us upon this earth. Um, Even in the moments as we're in the church today, we read in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, that behold... I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Even now, at this time, the Lord stands at the door of the church and albeit at the door of often our homes and our lives, and he knocks. And he awaits one that would open the door to allow him to enter and fellowship. Obviously, we understand in the act of regeneration, the Lord doesn't stand around and tentatively knock at the door of his elect child's heart and ask to be let in. Now, we're told that's an act of God's sovereign will. And we're told that there is none that would stay God's hand or say unto him, What doest thou? That's a sovereign act. If anything, the more appropriate analogy would be in the new birth that God rapidly knocks down the door and enters into his child's heart and borns them again. But in the sense of the fellowship that we experience with God, he stands at the door and he knocks. And he awaits those that would open that door unto him to dine with him. So we're told by Jesus, wait, wait carefully and patiently and with good preparation for the time at which Christ 
would knock at this door that we're speaking of and seek to fellowship. Blessed are those servants, in verse 37, whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. Because as Christ, as he's visiting us in fellowship, even on this day, perhaps often in this, I hope, in this church house that we're gathered in today. And he seeks those that would open the door and seek fellowship with him. When he finds those who are prepared to welcome him into their midst, something very, very curious happens. And this is something that I'm sure many of you have experienced regularly, I hope. And we come into the house of God prepared with worship, truly prepared. Not, not listening to a hymn or two on the way to church, but perhaps with our hearts prepared, with active efforts to banish distractions from our minds. Not coming into the house of God to be entertained, but to worship and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice before God. Something curious happens. When the Lord, he descends from heaven and he offers us the presence of his Holy Spirit and it fills the room and he sees servants gathered, prepared to fellowship with him. He takes upon himself the responsibility of serving us. And we offer our feeble efforts, our bodies as living sacrifices before God. Truly, it's not we that are serving Christ in the greatest sense. It's Christ that often ascends and he blesses and serves us with the presence of his Holy Spirit. So when we meet in the house of God with our loins girded about and our lights burning, as those that wait for the Lord to return from the wedding. Again, he may return for the second time and the final time. Or he may ascend and offer us the presence of his Holy Spirit, even in this day and in this time. He girds himself about and often makes us to sit down at a meal and serves us. Perhaps the Lord will come in the second watch or maybe in the third watch of the night and find them so, and we're told in verse 38 that blessed are those servants. Often, you know, too, at this time, we divide time differently than they would have in the time of Jesus. This we do know, that there would have been earlier and later watches of the night. Sometimes Christ comes in the earliest watch of the night. When we are most refreshed, when we are most prepared, we feel ourselves to be in the healthiest spiritual state than we had ever been in. Often he comes and he visits us during that time. That in and of itself is of a blessing. And I remember many times when I've come into the house of God, I've been excited to meet with the saints of God. I feel as if I'm more prepared than I've ever been to see Christ. And he comes down among the church and he visits his saints. And it is almighty blessing from above. Sometimes the Lord comes in the latest watches of the night when we are most discouraged and we are most weary and we are in the darkest portions of our life than perhaps we have felt in prior times. He often comes in those times. But still, regardless of when he comes, since it doesn't matter whether or not you're in the earliest parts of the night, you know, especially perhaps if you're younger, I've found myself staying up later and later because that's when I'm able to focus best. You know, perhaps the Lord comes in that watch of the night, you know, around midnight, around 10 o'clock, 
spiritually speaking, when we're still refreshed, we're still prepared, we're still wide awake and aware that he may be coming. Perhaps he comes when not many of us are awake. 3 or 4 a.m., 5 a.m., we're still deeply asleep. And he still asks his servants, servants, when I come, be prepared. And if he comes in the third watch, in the second, first watch, the second watch or the third watch, and he finds his servants prepared, he says, blessed are those servants. Because the Lord doesn't want to return from his wedding up above at the right hand of the Father, preparing a place for his bride as he prepares to come gather them to himself for the last time. He doesn't want to come down to his church, or I would say any of our lives, and find his servants in their night clothes, asleep in their beds, with the lights of the church and the lights of their houses darkened. Because there's often the servants that we read about in this passage, there's often those that stay awake, prepared for the coming of their Lord, but there's also those that waited through the first watch of the night, or perhaps the second watch of the night. And as the night wears on and they grow tireder and tireder, they decide, well, perhaps our Lord isn't returning from the wedding tonight. Perhaps he's gone elsewhere. Perhaps he's decided not to return. And they snuff out the lights of their lamps. And they take off their outerwear and they retire to their beds. And then suddenly, horror of horrors for those servants. The Lord does return. And can you picture this master returning home from a wedding after this great feast and time of celebration that he's had. And he comes up to his house and he looks and he sees that my servants aren't there to welcome me. They have snuffed out their lights. They have retired to their beds. All the lights in the house are out. There's no one to welcome me. The Lord doesn't want to see that when he comes down to this earth. He sends his Holy Spirit down to be amongst his people. He wants them to be prepared with their lights lit, their loins girded about, prepared to welcome him into their midst. Because we do not know what hour the Lord will return. And that's the point that the Lord Jesus Christ is making in verse 39. That if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh in an hour when ye think not. We don't know what hour the Lord may return. I've encountered the, whole, the presence of the Holy Spirit. In some of the deepest ways, at times at which I did not expect him to appear. And that's part of the message of Christ in this passage. We are not entirely sure when the Lord may visit us in our journey as disciples of Christ. We're not entirely sure when he may come. We're not entirely sure when he may even appear for the second and final time here upon this earth. So we are to wait We are to prepare, we are to watch, we are to stand with our loins girded about and our lights burning. And Jesus uses another analogy in this passage. He says, if you were the goodman of a house, or if you were the overseer of a house, and you had been given the knowledge that at some point during the night, a thief was to break in and steal your belongings, how would you prepare? Well, I'll tell you how I would prepare. I wouldn't be sleeping much that night. I would have every light in the house on. I would be in my full clothing. 
I would be preparing for the arrival of that thief. I would be walking about. I would be checking the doors and the windows. I would be waiting for that time when that foolish thief decided that he would break into my home. Now, I assure you, the Lord's not coming to steal all of our goods as a thief might. We're told in heaven, where the Lord dwells, where the Lord feasts today in celebration with his father, that the thief doesn't break in and steal. You know, the Lord is an antithesis of a thief. But yet, we are to prepare for him in the active manner that we would prepare if we had known that at some point during the night, a thief would break into our house. We don't know if it might be in the first watch, or the second watch, or the third watch. But we're to be actively preparing for the arrival of that thief because the Lord often steals in as a thief might we're not sure when he might arrive we're not sure when we might be graced with his presence I cannot tell you when he may bless your lives with the presence of the Holy Spirit again if I was utterly sure that the Holy Spirit would reveal himself in every worship service I wouldn't have to pray that he would come down amongst us. Because there are times at which I don't feel the Holy Spirit as manifestly as I might otherwise. Which is why we go before the throne of grace and we beseech God, God, take it upon yourself to send down your presence among us that we might feel him once again. Not because we're worthy of his presence, but because we need his presence. Not because we're worthy of the presence of God in our midst, but because it encourages us and it strengthens us on our way as we go throughout our weeks. And Peter, he says unto the Lord in verse 31, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? Peter's asking a fantastic question for us to consider this morning. Lord, are you speaking purely to the disciples? Are you speaking to all of us, gather together to listen to the teachings of Christ. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Or that is to say, who is the steward of Christ? I'll submit to you this morning that all of us, all of his children are stewards of Christ. Is there a good and precious blessing in your life, or we're told that's from above. You've been entrusted with the care of something from above, whether that's your family, whether that's the church, whether that's those nearest and dearest to you. You know, James tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. You know, so if there's anything good and precious in your life, that's from above. It's been gifted to you by the Father. And by default, that establishes each and every one of us as a steward of Christ. We have all been entrusted with a blessing at the hand of Christ. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. What does the Lord do when he returns and he finds a steward faithfully caring for his kingdom and the resources that he's entrusted them with. He promises them that he will trust them with more. The Lord entrusts his kingdom and the greatest portions of his kingdom into the hands of those who treat it most responsibly. And we understand this principle. You know, I entrust the care of my belongings 
and to the hands of those that I believe will treat those belongings most responsibly. You know, there are many mechanics in the town of Birmingham in which I live, but there is one that I return to over and over and over again. He started his own business, and sometimes it takes him a little longer to care for my vehicle. Sometimes it takes him a little longer to care for my belongings. But I know that if I take my vehicle to him, he's going to care for it as if it were his own. And when I show back up to pay him for his service, he shows me a list and he says, well, I've taken care of this and I've also taken care of this issue that the vehicle was having and this issue and this issue. And what do I do? Because of his faithfulness, I return and I entrust him with the care of my belongings over and over again. And I go back repeatedly to that mechanic. And that's a simple analogy. Perhaps it will help us to understand how the Lord deals with his kingdom when he comes down and he visits his household. And he sees his servants which deal most responsibly with his goods and his resources and his blessings and his gifts that he's entrusted to them. He grants them the responsibility to care for more. Perhaps that's growth in a church. When the Lord sees a minister caring responsibly for a portion of his kingdom, he blesses them with growth. Perhaps it's not growth. Perhaps it's the spiritual health of a church. You may not see the health of it, the, the growth of a church swell in number, but you see love and peace and unity, which I would say in many ways is an even greater blessing than a far larger church is to see a body of believers fellowshipping together in peace and unity and love. Because a small body of believers worshiping together in spirit and in truth and love and peace will serve a far greater example to the community to which it ministers than a large church torn apart by division and disunity. Perhaps it's growth in a family. Perhaps it's health and love and unity in a family. You know, perhaps it's, it's material wealth. Perhaps it's material blessing. Or perhaps it's, it's greater spiritual responsibility. The Lord says, when I return and I see a servant caring for my goods faithfully, I will entrust him with more. Now, the opposite of that attitude of faithfulness and responsibility is the attitude of the servant that we read about in verse 45. But and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and he shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and drink and be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and an hour at which he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. If the Lord returns to his household, and he looks at the servant that he's entrusted with the care of his kingdom. And he sees that they have, begin, they have begun to abuse what he has given them. The message of scripture is very clear. He takes that servant, the untrustworthy servant, and he places them amongst those that have no concern with the affairs of his kingdom. And he grants that portion of the kingdom which the unfaithful servant once had care of. To another. Let's read from the parable of the talents. In Matthew, the 24th chapter, we briefly mentioned 
last night. In verse 14 of Matthew, the 25th chapter, rather, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. Matthew 25, verse 14. So once again, we're, we're reading this similar analogy that Jesus is using. The kingdom of heaven is as a king who traveled into a far country. Yet this time, the king, the king, the Lord, the master in this occasion, he hasn't gone to a wedding, but he's still gone far away. He's gone to a far country. You know, the Lord, he has gone into a far country from our perspective. He has gone away for a time, and he's entrusted his servants with the responsibility of caring for his kingdom. And he entrusts three of his servants with a specific number of resources. In verse 15, and unto one he gave five talents. And to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several abilities, and straightway took his journey. So the master, he's going into a far country, and he has these talents, these sums of money that he wishes his servants to care for. And he gives different amounts of money to each of these three servants. We're told according to each's, each abilities. Now here in the church, we're all dispensed with different types and also different amounts of resources as we labor in God's kingdom. Now I'd say we'll notice in a moment that that's particularly irrelevant. But each of us are given different types and even different amounts of gifts. I will readily admit that it, when it comes to the attempt to preach... There are many ministers, many, many, who perhaps are dispensed with a greater gift in some ways than others. But we're about to see that it doesn't truly matter from the master's perspective the amount that these servants have been given. What matters is what they do with that amount. Because one servant we read, he's given five talents. And what does he do in verse 16? Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. So the master, he entrusts these five talents to the servant, and the servant wisely and industriously and faithfully, he takes those five talents and he goes and he trades in the market and he makes another five talents. Further still, in verse 17, likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. That is to say, the servant who had received two talents, he did the same thing as the servant that had received five talents. He goes out in the market, he trades, and he makes another two talents. And he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. What a contrast. We have a servant that's received five. He goes and he trades and he makes five more. We have a servant that's received two. And he goes and he trades and he makes two more. And what if the servant that had received one had continued this pattern, what would he have done? Well, he would have taken his one talent, he would have gone out into the market, and he would have traded for another. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And perhaps for some of these servants... This Lord, he returned in the first watch of the night. They're still fresh. They're still prepared. They're still awaiting the return of their Lord. I would say perhaps we see in the attitude of the first two servants, those that stand with their loins girded about and their lights burning. They didn't get up each morning and postpone the work of the Lord until the next day. They understood that any day now the Lord might return. And when he returns, I will be ready. 
But the third servant, we'll read that he grew, he seems to have grown discouraged by his Lord's absence. He seems to have grown discouraged by opposition and by fear, and he decides to bury his talent in the ground. And so he, upon the return of the the journeying Lord, in verse 20, so he that had received five talents came and brought another five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. So when the Lord returns, the the servant that has been dealt the five talents, he displays his earnings before the Lord. And he says, Lord, you've given me five. Here is ten. And the servant who's been offered two does the same thing as well. Notice in verse 21 how the Lord responds to these faithful servants. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou. Into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. And notice the identical response of the Lord to this second servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. So notice the response of the Lord to the two servants seem to be identical. Because again, the Lord's not primarily concerned with a gift that's dispensed to a child of God. He dispenses that of his own wisdom. That's really none of our concerns. Who are we to stand back and look at the potter that's formed the clay and say, Lord, why have you made me? Why have you granted me with this gift? No, the Lord simply charges us to take the abilities that we have been given and use them in the kingdom of God. And the Lord, he looks at the servants, one to whom was given five talents and one to whom was given two. And he simply judges them and assesses them on the basis of how they have used their gifts, not would they have been given? Both servants do the exact same thing. They, they both take what they have been given, and upon the return of their Lord, they're able to demonstrate to him that, Lord, we have doubled the blessing that you have given to us. But the third servant, the one who was given one talent, who perhaps should have doubled that to two, he comes before his Lord, and he says, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. What does he say? And I was afraid. And when it hid thy talent in the earth, lo, here thou hast, that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant. Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest, therefore, to have put my money to the exchangers. And then in my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Especially compared to the, servant, the performance of these first two servants. The responsibility that the third servant takes to his task is, re- is very, very lackluster. He comes to his Lord and he says, Lord... I do indeed understand that perhaps these servants have doubled the number of talents that you've given them, but I was afraid. So I went and I hid my talent in the earth, and now I've dug it back up, and here you have what's yours. And the Lord says, thou wicked and unprofitable servant. 
I've given you these gifts. And no, maybe even you did not have to receive and give the type of return that the first two servants did. But you could have at the very least earned some interest on this talent. That is to say, you didn't have to labor at all. You could have just given this talent to the exchangers and when I'd come back, they would have done all the work for you. And I could have received mine own with usury. You didn't have to reinvest so aggressively as the first servants did. But yet the servant, he decides to do the absolute bare minimum of what he could possibly do. He takes the talent and he buries it in the earth. And what's the Lord's pronouncement in verse 28? Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. You know, remember a true story that I was told by deacon. Very, very uh, seasoned old deacon as we have. Um, thankfully, they're growing rarer and rarer, but we need more and more of them among the Primitive Baptist Church. And he told me of a minister who has long since passed on in a church that has, has long since disappeared, that the church was at one point split by division. It was an issue related to, to one of the, the primary members of the church. And so the church, it disappears. They cease meeting. The members disperse to different churches in different areas. And after that church, the doors of that church had long since been closed. Uh, one of the members of, that had caused the division, he would come and he would sit outside of the church and he would weep bitter tears simply because the church had long since ceased to meet. And in that case, we have someone who's split a church wide open because of their lack of responsibility and caring for the Lord's resources. They're weeping outside of the church. They're stricken by the fact that perhaps they had a talent and now it's been taken and it's been removed elsewhere and it's not theirs for their possession and their enjoyment anymore. And that's the image that we're receiving here at this time that the Lord, he takes the servant and he says, servant, you were once under my care. You were once tasked with the responsibility of caring for my kingdom, but you buried the talent in the ground. It's much as the individual that we're told about in Matthew chapter 5 that we are not to be that takes their light and hides it underneath a bushel basket. Who takes light that should be casting guidance abroad to those around them and they take it and they cover it with a bushel basket. And the Lord says, when I see a servant that does that, I do what is honestly quite logical to our minds. I take that gift and I take that blessing and I give it to others who will care for it more responsibly. But the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious and he is, a, he is a merciful traveling Lord. He is a merciful king returning from his wedding. He tells us, for under every one that hath shall be given. And he shall have abundance. The Lord, he just asks us to be diligent. He asks us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, perhaps. You know, and Paul, interestingly enough, in Romans Chapter 12 and verse 1, how, what does he entitle that sacrifice as? He says that sacrifice is a reasonable service. Anything that the Lord asks of us, however hard it may be, you know, however many obstacles we may encounter, even among the ones that we discussed last night, 
any sacrifice and any act of service that the Lord asks us to engage in is more than reasonable. Paul says it is a reasonable service to offer yourself up as a living sacrifice before God. It is a reasonable service to often set aside the things of this world and press more heartily and diligently into the kingdom of God. It is a reasonable service to take the talents that we have been blessed with in the church and as children of God and to try to bring some for some sort of just unworthy and insufficient return before our Lord as he returns and he visits amongst us is a reasonable service but from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath the Lord says I just ask you to labor I just ask you to take what I've given you and use it in the interests of my kingdom but if you don't Quite honestly, the responsible thing, even in terms of what we understand about responsibility for the Lord to do, is to entrust the care of his kingdom to someone else who will deal with it more responsibly. Let's go back to Luke, the 12th chapter. Verse 46, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in sunder and appoint him with his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. He's reiterating that same principle. The Lord, if someone understands their responsibility in the kingdom of God and does not fulfill it, that's the person which the Lord punishes most heartily. But he that knew not and did not commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. You know, often I've been the servant that fully understands my responsibility in the context of the kingdom of God and still does not fulfill it. And in my conscience and in my actions, I've been beaten with many stripes. Say even more often, I've been the servant who is just ignorant and stupid. And has no idea what, is, what I ought to be doing and how I ought to be using my time. And the Lord returns and he graciously redirects. The Lord returns and he doesn't part it, punish as heartily as he might. It's a prick of the conscience and a conviction of the spirit. And with the directing power of the Holy Ghost and the reading of God's word, his children awfully quickly realize how they're often misusing the talents that he's given them. The Lord's not a hard taskmaster, as we might perceive him often to be. He is a righteous and just and perfect God who deals justly and yet somehow with mercy. But in terms of how hard he could often be on us as flawed human beings attempting to serve the God of the universe in the weak way that he do, the Lord is a very merciful taskmaster. You know, when the servant, when the servant, when the Lord returns to the unprofitable servant in the parable of the talents, and he looks at the talent in which he's been given, and the servant says, Lord, I know that you reap where you have not sown. I know where you, where you, that you gather where you have not strawed. That servant's making a gross misassessment of the Lord's character, and here's why. 
It may seem to us as if the Lord gathers where he has not strawed. In reality, we understand that we may sow the seed, but the Lord waters, and he, he, we may sow the seed in water, but the Lord gives the increase that we see in the kingdom of God. We may do all that we can, but it's ultimately the Lord that blesses the efforts of our hands. The Lord is able to, to gather seed and gather fruit and gather harvest wherever he would like, simply because he has generated that harvest and his blessing. So the servant, he looks at his potential gains and he says, Lord, I knew that if I had taken this talent and I had reinvested it in your kingdom, you just would have taken it anyway. Even if the Lord had chosen to take in that talent, taken the talents that his profitable servants had earned, he would have been full within his rights to do so. But what do you see him do? He takes their gains, he takes their profit, and he simply entrusts them with more. The Lord, the Lord often blesses those that serve in his kingdom, once again, especially in his church. Just an even more manifest blessing of his spirit and perhaps of growth and of peace, you know, in his church. Because remember the principles that we read about in verses 35 through 40. That the paradox of what we're reading about is that the Lord, when he returns to his children and he finds them watching and then prepared to welcome him, he sits down and he prepares them a meal and he feeds them. And again, to more clearly articulate this point, we come prepared to try to offer the Lord a meal in the church. There's something that we've confused in this age of entertainment and amusement. We often enter the church and we often enter all of our other activities with the expectation that we are to be entertained. No, our, ser- our worship and our service is a sacrifice to God. If anything, we are to, in some small way, to be entertaining Christ. We are performing before Christ this morning. We are gathered together to worship him. And yes, it is flawed, it is imperfect, and it is unworthy. But the Lord, he says, when I come down and I see my flawed servants gathered together in preparation to offer a sacrifice before me, I sit down and I bless them. I send my spirit into their midst and I revitalize their service. And I revitalize the ways in which they take their talents and they reinvest them. And they grow them and they strengthen them into something greater. He says, they may come with a meal to set before me, but I will set a meal before them. And his message rings true to back up to really in the 22nd verse of this chapter. That the ways in which we reinvest our talents and yield a return before the Lord is to ultimately take no thought for our own things, but to primarily consider the kingdom of God. And this is really to begin where we left off last night. When Christ, he says in verse 22, that we ought to take no thought for your life, for our lives, What ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens. 
For they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothe the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast in the oven, how much more will he clothe you of ye a little faith? And listen carefully. Listen carefully. And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Here is the truth of the matter as it relates to our propensity to be unprofitable servants. We are so called up and the things that we do on a daily basis throughout the week, that the kingdom of God rapidly recedes into the back corners of our mind until we're reminded that we are tasked with the responsibility to attend church on Sunday. It's something that I often find myself in. So I'm engaged in the pursuit of something worldly. Perhaps it's a career. Perhaps it's uh, your business. It could be any number of things. And then I'm reminded, suddenly, Sunday night, I'm to be in church on Sunday. I'm to be in church on Sunday. I'm to lead singing on Sunday. I'm to offer a prayer on Sunday. I'm to stand before the Lord's people on a Sunday. How has this been in the back corner and the recesses of my mind when all throughout this week, as yes, I was forced to seek after my clothing and the place that I'm housed, and my material sustenance in this world that I've forgotten about the kingdom of God until this very moment. How is it that I've forgotten about that which should be at the forefront of my mind at all times? The Lord says, all the nations of the world seek after these things. But the Lord, he feeds the ravens. He provides them a place for which to live. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a store, a house, or a barn. They don't have a bank account. They don't have a stock profile. And God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? That is to say, the Lord cares for the ravens. How much more is he going to care for one of his children, which the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood for we can't even take a thought to add to our own stature, even a small amount. I assure you today, even now, and especially at other times in my life, if I had the ability to add a cubit to my stature, I would have already done it. But as it is, as much as I've tried, nothing seems to really happen. We can't even add a cubit to our stature, much less provide for ourselves in this world Consider the lilies, they don't, how they grow. 
They don't toil to grow. They don't spin. They don't, they don't lay up for themselves treasures on this earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But yet the Lord, he provides them with growth and sustenance and blessing as one of his inanimate creations. Simply one of the, the works of his fingertips that he created before the world was formed. You know how much more we clothe us if he is to clothe the grass, which is today in the field, and the next day is cut down and bundled up and burned for warmth in the ovens. The Lord, he'll provide us with what we need to eat. He'll provide us with what we need. He'll provide us with food. He'll provide us with raiment. He'll provide us with sustenance while here in this world. That is less of a responsibility and a much less important responsibility than to seek wholeheartedly the kingdom of God even when we are not perhaps gathered in the church house today. And as the song that we sang in verse 32 says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Say that today as Jesus told the disciples multiple times in the passage we read last night. To combat the fear and the doubtful mind that would often discourage us from fruitfully reinvesting and utilizing the resources and talents that the Lord has placed within the kingdom of God. Because what does the servant say when the Lord returns to him and says, why have you not blessed me with two talents? He says, Lord, I was but afraid. I was just afraid. I was just so caught up in fear about what might happen if I decided to take this talent and reinvest it in your kingdom that I forgot to take it and use it to your advantage. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is a traveling Lord's good pleasure to entrust us with the blessings that he has given us. You know, again, he is a merciful taskmaster. Granted, if he was as hard of a taskmaster as the unprofitable servant suggested that he was, he wouldn't have given those servants resources to begin with. But yet, we're gathered in the kingdom of God. We're blessed to reap the blessings of what he's provided here in this earth. And he simply asks us, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. As we earnestly await the time that he may visit us here in this kingdom at this moment in this place, throughout this next week, throughout this next year, when he emerges from the most unlikely of places and he walks among his kingdom to see how his servants have treated the resources that he has entrusted them with, let us wait for his coming with our loins girded about and our lights burning as we wait together for the final time at which he will come to gather his bride home to be with him for eternity in all perfection. It's been a blessing to be with you here at Little Union. I pray that these things would be in the forefront of our minds and would garner the most earnest aspects of our attention um, throughout this next year.